What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Let's grab our Bibles. We're in Isaiah chapter 42 this morning. We're working through the book of Isaiah. When you find it, let's go ahead and stand up together because God's word is holy. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is inspired, the very word of the living God to his people. Isaiah chapter 42 is our text. We're going to read verses 1 to 9. Listen carefully to God's word. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Verse 5, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. Children don't grow up saying, I want to be a servant when I grow up. At least I've never heard anybody say that. Maybe a a rock star or a fireman or an astronaut, something like that. But very few people say, "I, I want to be a servant. We even have hard times these days trying to find people to fill those kinds of jobs where it's a service oriented industry. I know in, in California now they're paying $21 an hour for dishwashers at restaurants because who wants to be a dishwasher when you could be a YouTube influencer or something like that? How many of you are old enough to remember we used to call a gas station a service station? You remember that? Because you'd pull in your car 
and somebody would come up to your window and they'd ask you what kind of gas you want and they'd wipe down your windows for you and they'd even check your oil. I never even knew that was a thing. One time I was in college, this guy comes up to me with an oversuit and like a ski mask. I thought he was going to rob me or fight me, so I drove away. Look in my rearview mirror, he's got a shell badge on his chest, and I realize, oh, that's one of those service stations. We don't have too many people that do the role of service anymore. If you go to Walmart to check out, they have 42 cash registers, only two are actually open. What they want you to do, they want you to go to the self-serve area. They don't want to even have an employee to help you out. They want you to check yourself out, right? When I was in seminary, I worked as a waiter. I think every seminary student should be a waiter or a server at some point because you realize very quickly that you're not the boss. The customer is your boss and the cooks are your boss and your boss is your boss and you're the lowest one on the totem pole. We don't typically like to think of ourselves as servants of anybody. Uh, we like to think of that we are those who are served and not those who should ought to serve other people. And so we're somewhat astonished and taken aback when Jesus comes roaring through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, saying things like this. Listen to Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or... Luke 4.8, when he says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So even, even our worship is actually an act of service to the Lord. Not only is the Lord himself called a servant, but when we worship him, we call that service. We still retain that language, by the way, in the use of the worship service, which is the time that we actually gather together in Sing praise to his name. And then Jesus says this in John 12.26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am. There will my servant be also. So Christ is a servant. Worship is a service. And discipleship is essentially our becoming his servants and learning how to do everything that we do to honor him. And in today's text, in Isaiah chapter 42, we're coming into a new section in the book of Isaiah called, and this probably won't surprise you by my introduction this morning, the servant songs of Isaiah. There's four of them in these latter stages of the book of Isaiah. As we've worked through this prophetic material together as a congregation, we've now, we've seen all kinds of literature in this prophet. We realize what a great writer and preacher Isaiah is. We've seen a vision, uh, visions recounted in the throne room of God, Isaiah chapter 6. We've seen his uh, prophetic predictions where something he says is later fulfilled, either literally or typologically or spiritually. Uh, we've seen Isaiah preach what are called the woe oracles to the nations where he launches foreboding messages of doom to the unrepentant, unbelieving nations. We've seen a narrative historical narrative in which we follow the actual events of the life and times of Isaiah. And now we're going to see four of these in the coming weeks, these servant songs. Now, some scholars debate as to how many servant songs there are. Some say there's four. That's what we're going to hold here, by the way. Some say there's five or six or even seven servant songs. Let's really quickly 
go through them just so you know where they are in your Bible. So the first one is right here in Isaiah 42. By the way, have your Bible open working through this material with me. This is important stuff. The first one is in Isaiah 42. That's our text this morning. We're going to comb through it in just a minute. The next time we see a servant song, it's going to be in Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49 has one. And here we're going to learn something important about this servant. Who is he? This servant is going to be one who's going to bring Israel back to faithfulness, Isaiah 49.5. And he's going to be a light to the Gentile nations, verse 6. So that's important. That's about his mission in the world. Uh, flipping over one more to chapter 50 then, just when we think we understand who the servant is, uh, we learn in chapter 50, verse 6, that the way he's going to be a light to the nations is by great suffering on his own part. Uh, he's going to be one who is struck repeatedly, verse 6 of chapter 50, his cheeks are going to have his beard pulled out. He's going to be subject to disgrace and spitting and mockery. And so how it is that he brings about this service to the Lord is going to come through the mechanism of his own suffering. And then in the greatest of all the servant songs, the one you already know, but you probably didn't know that you knew it, is the great prophetic messianic prophecy of chapters 52 and 53 and this is where we see how the servant brings about redemption namely by dying in our place he is despised and rejected he is pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities etc he is one who is cut off from the land of the living assigned a grave in his death and so on and so forth you probably know that passage and when we get to it we'll deal with it in some great detail but for this morning we have the first of these four great servant songs on our desk to deal with, and so we're going to do that. So let's go back to Isaiah chapter 42, and let me give you our outline this morning of what I'm going to try to accomplish here in the time that we have. Uh, we're going to have to move a little bit quickly this morning, for time is fleeting, but we're going to look at three things about this servant in chapter 42. First, we need to address the question, who is the servant of which the servant songs sing? So... Who is this? Who are we talking about here? Pretty basic question. Uh, second of all, we're going we're gonna to ask a why question. Why has he been sent from this text, Isaiah 42? Who is it? Why has he been sent? And then third, in application, we need to discuss how shall we be like him? Is there any way that we too are called to be this kind of a servant, and we'll do some application there. So who is a servant? Why has he been sent? And then in application, how shall we be like him? So with Bibles open, let's, let's dig into the material this morning and see what we can learn about the servant. Look at verse 1 of chapter 42. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, the father says, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, two sermons ago, uh, Isaiah told us to behold. Do you remember the sermon? He said, behold the greatness of God, and behold the finitude of our humanity. And now, Isaiah comes back to us with that same word, behold, which I told you a couple of weeks ago was like soul deep seeing. Seen all the way in so that it transforms and changes you. Now Isaiah is telling us that there's another one that we are to behold, and it's him. It's the servant. Behold the servant. Now the Hebrew word here for servant is a very common word 
in the Old Testament. It's the word ebed. It just simply means a slave or a servant. In fact, the, bre- the, the, the broadness of the term is quite astonishing. It can mean quite literally a slave, like you think of the Israelites were slaves of the Egyptians, right? Remember book of Exodus? Or ebed can mean something more like a, a faithful household servant who's maybe even on the payroll of the master. Or it can even mean a high-ranking official under a greater king. So this word ebed has quite a broad range of meanings. This servant of the Lord that Isaiah begins to sing about in these four servant songs. Now, now we do have to ask, and it is a fair question here. I think you're probably jumping ahead of me as to the answer of this, but who is the servant? Well, let's consider a, a couple of possibilities. As some scholars have suggested that it's Isaiah himself. That's not a view that I'm particularly fond of, although there is some textual basis for it. In Isaiah chapter 20, verse 3, the prophet Isaiah himself is called the servant of the Lord, Isaiah himself. And so on that basis, 23, we might say, well, maybe Isaiah is talking about his own prophetic ministry as a preacher, but I, I don't think so, because Isaiah, much like John the Baptist, His role is simply to preach the one who is greater than himself, right? Remember John the Baptist said, he must become greater, I must become less. The prophet's real job is never to preach messages about himself or his own ministry or his own power, but when a prophet is at his most faithful, what he's doing is shining the spotlight away from himself to the one who is greater. In that respect, he's more like a, A stage crew member who's shining the spotlight on the great protagonist on the stage rather than turning that light on himself. So I don't particularly find that a persuasive argument that Isaiah is talking about himself. Now a second and more difficult suggestion is that which is presented normally by um, Old Testament believing Jewish interpreters. If you were to, to ask an Old Testament believing Jew who are these servant songs about? The most likely answer that you will get is that they're about the nation of Israel herself. So collectively as the people. Uh, Isaiah's talking about Israel's role. And again, there is some textual support for this. So with your Bible, look, look with me. Just one chapter o- over to the left in chapter 41 and verse 8. It says, but you... Israel, my servant, there's that word, the Hebrew word ebed, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. So on that basis, some scholars like Abraham Heschel, who wrote one of the definitive Jewish works on the Old Testament prophets, he says that the servant of the Lord, the ebed Yahweh, is the nation of Israel. But I don't buy that either for reasons that we'll fully explain when we come to Isaiah chapter 49. But one of the problems with holding that it is the nation of Israel is that in chapter 49, verse 5, it says one of the roles of the servant is to bring Jacob and Israel back to the Lord. So how can the servant bring himself back to the Lord? It seems that maybe there ought to be a third party involved. And not only that, But in chapters 52 and 53, when we get into this marvelous passage about the servant being pierced 
for our transgressions, then it becomes impossible to ignore the notion that the servant is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isaiah sings four songs about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to prove that to you by looking to the New Testament and a couple of the things that it says about the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, First of all, consider this. There are two times, at least two, but it's not very often in the New Testament, when God the Father speaks out loud. Do you know what they are? The baptism of Christ is one, and the transfiguration of Christ is the other. The Father speaks out loud about his Son. And what does the Father say out loud about his own Son? Well, interestingly, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, at the transfiguration scene, the Father calls his Son the Chosen One. And at the baptismal scene, the Father speaks again out loud. That's prior to the transfiguration, of course, chronologically. The Father speaks out loud and says, This is the one in whom my soul is well pleased. And so the two times that the Father speaks out loud in the Gospels, he's actually pointing to the Son in exactly the same terminology that Isaiah 42 uses to describe the servant, the Ebed Yahweh. And if there's any doubt remaining left, well, on the basis of New Testament authority and our supplemental New Testament reading this morning from Matthew chapter 12, we already saw that Matthew said that Isaiah 42 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So again, this is Matthew chapter 12. We already read this this morning. This was to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. So Matthew the apostle pins Isaiah 42 to the, ch- to the chest of Jesus and says, here is the servant. So for us New Testament Christians, it's not really a controversy at all. Christ is the servant of the servant songs. Now, let's move then secondly to answer this question. Why has he come? According to Isaiah. Now, in Bible study on Wednesday nights, I just gave you about 12 reasons why Jesus came into the world. But let's confine our study this morning to this text that's on our, on our desk, on our laps this morning. Why has the servant come according to Isaiah 42? Well, uh, let's get into the text a little bit further. Look at verses 2 and 3. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. So he didn't come to do that. He didn't, he didn't come, verse 2, to just complain Uh, He didn't come to cry out or to moan or to be the squeaky wheel. He didn't come to be some talking head. That's that's what verse 2 is indicating, right? He didn't come to just gab. He didn't come to spout out all his ideas. He didn't come to just be one opinion out of many hundreds of opinions. It wasn't just some other voice adding to the clamor of all of the various opinions in the world. That's not the point of why the servant came. But rather, look at this, verse 3. We're going to see a couple of things here. A bruised reed he will not break, and and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So one of the things that we can say about verse 3 is simply this. He came to comfort those who belong to the Lord. 
right? His is, his is a comforting and encouraging and affirming ministry for those who already belong to the Lord, those who are already a part of his covenant by grace through faith. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because of the images that verse 3 presents to us. So picture this in your mind, what Isaiah is describing in in poetic language here in verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, right? So you've got to read, and if it's bruised, he didn't come to snap what's already weak. If it's already injured, he didn't come to dismantle it, to break it apart. Nor does it say, a faintly burning wick, he does not come to quench. Now, we have... Similar expressions in the English language about those exact sentiments of feeling, right? Uh, When you feel like you're weak and like you're about to be overcome by the the trials of life, uh, we don't say, I mean, I feel like a bruised reed that's about to be broken. We don't typically say, I feel like a, a smoldering wick that's about to be quenched. But we do have all kinds of expressions in English that convey that same sentiment. We say, for instance, I'm at the end of my rope. You ever heard that? You ever felt that? Or we say something like this, I am about to snap. That's a modern day euphemism saying the exact same thing of a bruised reed ready to break. Uh, We say I'm totally burned out. Have you ever felt burned out at work or at home or even in the faith? I'm sure you have. We say I'm barely holding on. We have all these kinds of expressions that convey the same symbolic language of one who's just about ready to give way from the troubles and burdens of this life. And what we hear about this servant whom Isaiah is singing about is he did not come to break you at your moment of weakness, but rather what the servant has come to do is actually to strengthen you and to encourage you. And so as much as I've been uh, teaching a little bit this morning, uh, let me change hats from teacher to preacher, if I, if I can for a minute, and simply say this. I'm willing to guess on the basis of the little that I know about human nature, being one myself, that there are probably more than a few of us in the room that feel like, like you are about ready to give way. Am I wrong? You don't have to raise your hand or anything, but I'm guessing there are a few bruised reeds that stumbled into church here this morning. Could be wrong. I think I'm right, though. I'm guessing that there are a few of you whose wick is, is, is smoldering. Remember the image here? Uh, in the ancient world, they had these oil lamps, and when the oil begins to run dry then what happens left is the fire just burns up the wick. And once it starts to smolder, once you see that, that thick black smoke going up, you know there's not much left. And I'm just willing to guess here this morning that there are some of you whose flame is flickering, the oil is almost gone, the wax is almost burned up, maybe your heart is broken from some of the pains of this life, maybe... 
Maybe guilt is overwhelming you right now. You, you know you're in a lifestyle. You know you're, uh, you're in a sinful way. That guilt is weighing heavily upon you. Uh, if it's not that, maybe you're struggling with doubt and you're wondering about all these things that you were, you were raised to believe and now you're struggling to believe those things in which you had been catechized. Or maybe there's somebody here who is facing a, a deep and serious temptation that is about to crush you and you're flirting with fire right now. You're, you're playing with decisions that could easily destroy your whole life right now. You are flirting with these flames of temptation. You say to yourself, like, Lord, I don't know how much longer I can fight this off. Or maybe your wick is, is smoldering because of a loneliness or because a loved one is failing, but I'm pretty sure that this morning there are more than a few of us in the room for whom Psalm 69 is, is true. In Psalm 69, the psalmist cries out, Lord, save me for the waters have come up to my neck to change the, the, the image and the metaphor here. I sink in deep mire. There's no foothold. And if that describes you in any one of those, in any one of those possibilities this morning, here's the good news for you. The servant did not come to take that little bit of flame left and snuff it out. The, the servant did not come to take that last fiber that's holding on and break it so that you would be undone. Rather, he has come to comfort and to strengthen and to affirm you, Christian believer. And I, let, me, let me just say this as honestly as I can. In this life, almost everybody will disappoint you at some point, all right? Your pastors will disappoint you. Your, your elders will disappoint you. Your deacons will disappoint you. Maybe you think the church is in large form a disappointment. Maybe your loved ones will disappoint you. But let me just simply remind you of this. The servant comes to be the one person who will not crush you. He has come to comfort. Now, what else does he come to do? Let's move quickly here to notice also that he comes to save. So not only does he come to comfort those who are already his children, now all of this comforting that I've described is for, for believers, for those who are in Christ. If you're not a believer, he didn't come to comfort you about that, for sure. But what he did do is to come to save those who are in a place of darkness. Look ahead to verse 7. He came also to save those who were in darkness. It says in verse 7 of our text, He came to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So two more very vivid images here of, of the Savior, the Messiah's work. It says, first of all, he's, He comes to give light. So that blind people can see. Now, I, I interpret that, of course, literally, because in the Gospels, we see Jesus going about giving sight to the blind man. By the way, still can't do that. There's no pill that you can take to cure blindness today. Only Christ can do this. But don't forget that blindness in the Gospels, and especially in the book of John, blindness itself... Uh, points to a greater and more problematic blindness, the blindness of unbelief. 
Which is why in John 9, for instance, when Jesus literally heals a blind man, he then goes on to rebuke the Pharisees for their hardness of hearts because they don't believe. And part of the reason Jesus came is to give sight to those who are spiritually so dead that they can't even see God. They don't see God's glory. They don't see their own sin. They don't see Christ as as beautiful or as a savior. And so Christ says, I alone can give that kind of sight to dead hearts. And then look at this. Not only does he do that, but he also brings out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Well, I've, um, not bragging, but I've never been to prison before. Maybe some of you have. I've visited prisons, so I I don't know much about what daily life is like in the prison. Uh, I've visited people that I love in prison, jail before, but I don't have much experience. Some of you have more experience in terms of visiting or doing prison ministries, or maybe you've been there yourself. Um, What I do know, by way of observation, is that modern prisons are better than ancient dungeons. Can we start there? Is that fair? Because in modern prisons, even if it's the max security prisons, you get you get fed, you get you get water, you get a commode that flushes, you get uh, you get light in your cell, uh, maybe a little activity in the yard. But but remember, in the ancient world, the dungeon's not a modern prison, is it? Dungeons were typically in the grounds. uh, Typically, had no light. You might not see light for months. Dungeons, you've got mold and you've got mildew and uh, you've got chains literally chaining yourself to to the wall. You've got the only human voices you hear, maybe moans and agonizing cries of of those who are in other cells. The the dungeon is the worst place imaginable. And and here what we see is that the servant comes. And what does the servant do to those who are in prisons? What does he do? Well, according to Isaiah, he comes to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from prison to those who sit in darkness. Now, if you're in an ancient prison and you hear footsteps coming down the hall, like normally what you're thinking is you're getting another beating. That's what footsteps down the hall means when you're chained to the wall in the dungeon. When you hear footsteps and you see the light of the lantern coming down the hallway, and you're consigned to a prison, normally what that means is another beating is coming upon you. But imagine, imagine the thrill of joy and hope when you realize that it's not another beating. But it's actually one who's come to deliver you and to bring you out of the prisons, into life, into freedom. And once again, uh, moving from teaching to preaching here, I, I, I just... Just want to make some conjecture that there might be some people that either have or are right now living in prisons, dungeons even. Now you look around the room this morning, don't do it right now, but, but do it later on. And what you're going to see visually with your eyes is you're going to see people with their hair combed and they've got their nice clothes on and they got, you know, maybe, maybe some extra eyelashes on there, who knows? 
Maybe a little, little extra toupee on the top, you know, just, just for church. Everybody looks cleaned up. Everybody looks like they're, they're fancy. They got their life in order. Everybody looks pretty religious this morning, yeah? But, but do this. At some point, when you look around the room, I want you to look at other people's wrists. And what you're going to see is that they have, at least the Christians, have the scars on their wrists and on their ankles where the chains used to hold them in the dungeons. And so here's, here's what we are, Gospel Fellowship. You ready for this? What we are is a, is a bunch of prisoners that have been set free by the gospel. That's all we are. Don't ever think you're more than that. And don't ever forget where you came from. All right, because um, there are some even here this morning who have been set free from dungeons of addiction, or drugs and alcohol. There, there are some that are being set free from dungeons of depression or suicide. There are people around you, maybe sitting near you, that have been set free from abusive relationships or chained to pornography or to sexual sin or to incredible financial debt. That's a prison too, isn't it? Financial debt. Yes, it is. And there are some that have been chained to ambition and pride. And if you look around and they won't show you the scars on their wrists because they're a little bit too proud of who they are now. Uh, maybe they think that, that they've got everything in order, that they're the one person in the room who's, who's religious and right, and, and they're the servant and not Jesus, and they don't need a servant like Jesus to come set them free. Then they probably already still have the shackles of religious hypocrisy on their wrists. That's what they have. And the gospel is the message that sets us free from these dungeons. So don't ever forget. When you come to church and you look around you to the left and to the right, a few pews front and a few pews back, that you're looking at people who've been set free. And many of them still need to be set free. And so third then, and we'll make brief application here, I promise. How then shall we be like him? Well, uh, fairly obviously, if Christ came to serve and not to be served, then what does that say about us? Well, then that's our role too, right? We're servants. We're servants. That's what we are. On Wednesday nights, we've been looking at uh, the divinity of Christ. We looked at a passage in Philippians chapter 2 called the Carmen Christi, a famous passage about the divine nature of Jesus Christ. If you're here on Wednesdays, you already know what I'm going to say. Uh, if you're not... Come join us at Bible study some night on Wednesday nights. It's a good time. But in the Carmen Christi in Philippians chapter 2, says something very interesting about the nature of Christ. In Philippians 2, um, let's see, verse 6, it says that Christ was in the form of God. In the Greek, en morphe theou. In all the divine attributes and aspects of God. He is God. Christ has the divine nature, the same divine essence as the Father and the Holy Spirit. And yet, it tells us in the next verse that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So he goes from en morphe theou, in the form of God, the aspect of God's essential nature. But he takes on, in verse 7, the morphe doulou in the Greek. It's an obvious play on words. 
the form of a servant. And if Christ, who is God and is divine, acts then as a servant, then what in the world does that say about us? Well, we ought to be servants too. And so we ought to pray that God would give us the heart of a servant, uh, that we would be willing to run into battle for him if he would call us to do that, that we would be willing to dash through fire for him if he would call us to do that, that we would be willing to swim the channel or climb the highest mountain, whatever the Father calls us to do for his glory, then we should have such a heart in us because that's what Paul says in Philippians 2, right? Have this mind as Christ himself. So how he thought about how himself is the same way that we ought to think about ourselves. In other words, there's no task that he can call me to do that I can say no to. Like, I can't say, no, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not called to wash dishes here. I, I can't say I don't, I don't take out the garbage. I, I can't say I don't, I don't clean up the communion cups. That's not, I, w- I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I don't touch those. We don't say I wouldn't fold the bulletins or whatever else. Listen, there are no non-servants in the church of Christ. Okay, There are no non-servants. The pastors, your elders, your deacons, your staff, the members... All of us are servants. So let's pray that God would give us that kind of a heart for his glory. And then it'll be true that the Father, the soul of the Father, delights in us even as he delights in his Son. Let's stand up together. We're going to sing our closing hymn. It's hymn number 682. This is a new hymn for this congregation. It's also a psalm. It's Psalm 31. Let's sing this together. Now receive the benediction of our God. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face shine upon you and give you his peace. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you 
and give you his favor in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.